You're listening to the Popzara Podcast. It's movie time. Hey, it's movie time. We're back again with another enjoyable episode, should be enjoyable episode of Movie Time Podcast with Popzara. I'm your host, editor-at-large at Popzara, Ethan Brem, and my co-host, the head honcho over there, is Nathan Evans. How you doing, Nathan? I've been demoted. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do not do not adjust your dial. This, this is I was told to do this. No, no problem. And uh, thank you, Ethan. I think you should tell people that chronologically speaking, uh, we are going to be talking about a, a really interesting set of movies. But we were talking right before we recorded. You're going to be hosting something pretty spectacular in the LA yeah, area. Yeah, so I'm we... uh, I'm moderating two panels over at LA Comic Con this weekend, December third and fifth. This might probably come out after that. But uh, yeah, we're doing a a uh, panel discussion about. Um, Video stores, nostalgia, physical media, all that kind of stuff, and kind of where where streaming fits into there, and, and just the evolution of of all that stuff, and if streaming is in fact better or worse than uh, video rental stores. That's but I think you guys all know the answer to that. Well, that's a fun topic, and so if you're listening to this in January, it's done. So too bad. <laughs> so no, congratulations. That's a big deal. Um, yeah, it's my first. It's my first ever moderating of a, of a panel which is cool i'm excited nervous and oh yeah yeah you're gonna do fine you, if you do the panel as well as you did the intro you're gonna be fine Thanks. so what do we got on tap for today so today we got 1932's todd browning directed freaks about a freak show of course and then we have 1980s david lynch's sophomore outing the elephant man which was a best picture nominee <laughs> I love how you say it's it's freaks. It's about a freak. That's like a movie called Bug about bugs. Yeah, of course. Like, well, Brick um, wasn't about bricks though. So no, that's that's because it was indie trash. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> didn't uh, didn't the guy who did uh, yeah, Spider Man Spider Man do Brick? No, it was uh, Ryan Johnson. Ryan Johnson. Oh no, Brick's yeah, your other favorite. I was thinking of Mark Webb. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, but I'm I'm yeah. getting my actors confused. Okay, we got two very interesting movies. Uh, I don't. I think it goes without saying if you've if you've seen these films before, they're both black and white. They both deal with some very risque topics about deformity and about humanity. I would I would argue. Which one do you want to start chronologically, or do you want to do one or the other? What do you think? Yeah, I think let's start chronologically because uh, I think Freaks is uh, more so an, kind of an expose on the old school freak shows and circ and how they kind of went uh the dynamics of that in the circus and then elephant man we can kind of uh piggyback off of that which is ironic because um we talk about freak shows and circuses and you say the elephant man uh has nothing to do with the circus really no uh, yeah and- it, it's yeah just about a a dude who's been exploited for his deformity well, you mentioned the director, so let's talk a little bit about Freaks. So let's give us a synopsis about 1932's Freaks. Freaks is about a traveling circus, and you have the quote-unquote freaks who are, are you know deformed individuals, or you know some of them are are, uh, are midgets, little people, whatever, however the, the whatever the people... terminology changes. Yes, I, yeah, and how they kind of intermingle with the normal looking people uh you know the the acrobats who are i mean let's let's be honest everyone who performs in a circus is a freak in one way or the other aren't we all but, yeah so yeah. And, and i think that's it's not really that's not really ever stated but it's kind of implied that everyone here is kind of a weirdo um even the people who are not physically uh they don't physically look like weirdos they're they're 
uh, arguably more weird than the actual people who look well, deformed. You know, it's funny. It's it's. I didn't realize because I had um, I had always had this movie in my life. I had a, I had this movie on VHS as a kid. You know, you talk about you know you're talking about VHS stores. You could easily find like freaks next to like Mary Poppins back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's just yeah, completely different movies. But are they really? Um, yeah. <laughs> but 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 even but watching it now in the in the post zombie apocalyptic thing where zombies have become so pronounced, you you really do appreciate the fact that it's it's an early version of the the real monsters are the people as opposed yeah. to quote unquote the titular freaks. Oh yeah, and, and this yeah. was a year before King Kong, right? Nineteen thirty-two, uh, year after Dracula and Frankenstein. Same, same director, though, by the way, Todd. Same Brown director as as uh, Dracula. Was same director as Dracula or, or Frankenstein? Dracula, yeah. Dracula was it? Okay. Oh yeah, Todd Browning. <laughs> James Will did Frankenstein, right? But um, uh, yeah, it, it is definitely, and even I mean, uh, we're jumping ahead here, but the ending even. Uh, People call this a horror movie, and it's it's really up to for debate whether or not uh, it's a horror movie. And I think as time goes by, you watch it now, and you're like, okay, this is not a horror movie. But I think back in 1932, when the term was really loosely defined for cinema, mm-hmm. I think you could call it that. Just as far as um, you know, it, it really kind of plays with your expectations of what. You know, you go into this thinking you're going to see one thing, and then the result is actually completely different. Um, and then you have the ending is you 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 kind of have these kind of the, the you know zombie like uh, you know when the when the when the uh, the people who you know don't have legs or arms and they're kind of crawling under kind of almost zombie like how we see zombies now. Um, yeah, pretty it's much. Really, it's really uh, evocative of. of that imagery but you know it's the good guys chasing the villain uh and you the way that this movie is um and obviously it was it was originally well not obviously but it was originally a 90 something minute movie and then they cut it down because a lot of the stuff was like really grotesque like they castrated one of the guys and uh they showed i think more of the details of how they ended up deforming the the villain and and so the villain is is a was she an, an acrobat or a tightrope walker or something like that yeah she was a beautiful beautiful woman and she is um basically pretending that she's in love with one of the midgets in the circus um because uh he gives her these gifts and stuff and then behind his back she's making fun of him with the other some of the other uh normal people she's and very she's really cruel let's just say it. she's um, extremely cruel Cleopat- um, cleopatra yeah her, cleopatra yeah. is her name her she's played by olga baklan baklanova yeah who's also in another freak show movie called the man who laughs which is iconic uh, 1928 i think that movie came out um and she's in that movie too and she's kind of in this kind of similar role uh and um and by the way, she looks like Madonna, doesn't she? She's also in a movie called Wolf of Wall Street. Go figure. Um, here's the thing. You're not wrong, and I think it should, we should say up front that this movie is interesting because while it was a huge box office dud and critically reviled, um, speaking of VHS, VHS helped this movie resurrect itself and become infamous, and then it became respected. And yeah. I, would, I would argue reevaluated. And reevaluated, and I think its position – has changed considerably. We can talk about that. But who knows? When you say Madonna, which Madonna? There's like 5,000 Madonnas. 
And they all look different. Yeah. This <laughs> Sorry. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. And in the film, and as far as the horror, I mean, the, the movie kind of finds its macabre in how unsettling it is more than um, actually, uh, you know, tropishly horrific it is. Because there's no, there, I mean, 1932, there were no horror tropes like there are now. So we look at it differently. But um, yeah, it, it's really interesting. I, I really this is a movie that every time I like it I, I appreciate it more and more and it's it's almost it's it's one of the more enigmatic I think pre-code movies just based off of you, you actually have these it's cast with real um, you know people with real deformities and it's cast with real midgets people who don't have arms or and or legs um, people who have are you know what they call pinheads i forget what the name of the microcephaly micro, is it microcephaly microcephaly yeah yeah microcephaly um I, and you have like schlitzy who's kind of became famous in his own right uh well and so there's this real like sadness about the movie and just watching the the, the array of emotions is really unique when you watch this movie because there's a, a really truth uh, like an actual truth to this that authenticity of the casting that you don't get with any movie I, that I've ever watched. Like the way I feel when I watch this movie, as far as like how sad I get and how um, emotional I get when watching this movie, it, I've never. I, I don't think I can match it. Not the, not the level of emotion, but just the type of emotion. I, I don't think I can match it with another movie personally. Well, I think we matched it with a pretty good movie, actually. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah, yeah. and I think it's actually interesting because. I do think this movie gets a terrible reputation that is not deserved. Yeah. And uh, I want to back up real quick because I want to say we are going to be using some language that may sound culturally insensitive. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do this to this film. I don't want to sit here and say, and I don't think you do either, like, okay, let's bleep out words. Let's not use the word midget. Let's use the word little person. But this yeah. movie, the tagline for this movie, right? <laughs> the tagline was, quote unquote, can a full grown woman truly love a midget? Yeah, it's kind of misleading, I guess. And and we're talking about the two little people in this film, which are, of course, Hans and Daisy. In the movie, they're a couple, but in real life, they're brother and sisters played by an acting family called, um, oh, what are they called? The Doll Family, very famous. But there's a dignity to their performances. But in the movie, they use the word dwarf and midget interchangeably. Yeah. And so yeah. just so if you're listening, we're not trying to be offensive or misleading. It's just this is a movie from a very different time. And I want to be clear about something. Here's my opinion, and this is just – I'm going to get this on, on paper. I'm going to get this down right now and let this carry through for the whole picture for my opinion. As offensive as people might view this film, Ethan, I actually take the opposite view. I actually think if you actually look at it now and you look at the way it was developed, you look at uh, what's been written about it by the director, you know, Todd Browning, I actually think considering – you mentioned pre-code Hollywood, which is important – Pre-code is when movies were still very interesting, and they could be they could take take chances, and they didn't have self censorship by Hollywood self imposed, you know, culture police. Um, you have men grabbing women and kissing them. You have this and that. You have horrifying images, and let's not even get started on the gangster pictures, which are the best. Yeah. But this particular film, I think, has been accused of being uh, provocative and exploitive. I actually think the opposite. I actually think everybody focuses on that one scene, you know, the, the, the quote-unquote the attack scene in the mud. But that's just one scene. The rest of the movie, you watch these characters, these, these people, and they're just doing mundane things, like take drinking or eating or having a conversation. 
or let's be honest, man, this movie is horny as hell. Yeah. Did you did you expect this much sex in this? I mean, th- nobody's having sex, yeah. but everyone's dating, getting married, hooking up, all this stuff. Uh, the 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 what is it? The human skeleton and the bearded lady have a baby. Yeah, and, and then she and then uh, Cleopatra asks the her, what is his name Hercules. Yeah. She says, "Do you like them?" Referring to her breasts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and is this like everyone's effing in this movie? Yeah. All over the place, and it's just treated like with a little bit of mundane you know nonchalance yeah. and um you mentioned uh schlitzy for example mm-hmm. schlitzy is the the very famous uh performer with microcephaly but was schlitzy cast as a female in this movie yeah i, th- I think um he's supposed to be a female um i and yeah. I, I know there was a time where people I mean, before you know the internet people weren't even sure if he was a female or a male i don't think very okay did you ever see that seinfeld episode where jerry dated the woman with the man hands no. Okay. I don't. You trust me. If everybody knows what I'm talking about, if they've seen it, like I look at Schlitzy and I kept saying, "This is not. That's, that's no. That's not a woman. That's a man." Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. He, and, and I mean, every, when he's in, when he's in it, he steals the show. I think he's. Oh like, yeah. He's adorable. I think he's. He's so. He has so much charm in. In and uh, I think he's he's become famous in his own right and rightfully so. And there's actually I think there's a documentary coming out about him. In a couple months. Oh, uh, wonderful! I, I can't wait to see. But um, yeah, I mean, the cast here is awesome. Everyone mm-hmm. in it. Yes, is, everyone's great. All, all the protagonistic characters are very, are very charming, and you really rooting. You're rooting for every single one of them, and I think that's what this movie does well. Is it you sympathize with? It, it humanizes these these people who, even at a time, there were still freak shows in the 30s. Yes. Um, and uh, and I think. It's intriguing to watch old uh, freak show stuff and content about freak shows because there's, this stuff can't, this stuff doesn't exist today in, in our well, Western world. Let's, um, if we put it in perspective, I mean, the 1930s were not far removed from the old Nickelodeon movies, yeah. where people could spend a, a nickel or whatever and see something. And and if you think about it, when when film became something, when when film was limited to a few seconds or a few minutes, I mean, the idea of transferring just form people onto celluloid was an easy way to do it. You didn't need makeup. You didn't need special effects. Um, but without them, I hate to say this, you wouldn't have people like Lon Chaney. You wouldn't have Frankenstein. You wouldn't have this because they provided a template of which, quote-unquote, the monsters would be you know, inspired by. Mm-hmm. And Oh, yeah. No, that's a great point. And, well, and also, uh, it's kind of conflicting because like a lot of these people voluntarily joined – the circus because it gave them a purpose kind of and yes it's kind of this weird thing when you think about it and 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 obviously you know gawking at them is considered taboo but uh yet like when i watch freaks i'm looking at it with wonder like i'm like holy cow like it's amazing that this person with no arms or legs can light a cigarette with only his mouth and that's imp- like to me i admire this guy for kind of his high spirits oh. and you're talking about, you know, about Prince his... Randian, the living yeah, torso? Yeah, I, I mean, and to me, I look at these people and just, I admire all of them. And and obviously, you know, <laughs> you're not going to have freak shows anymore uh, in our world, but in our society at least. But at the same time, like well, watching we, something. We, like we kind of do though, though, um, <laughs> because we have reality TV. Yeah, it's true, right? And, and no, <laughs> I mean. Like, yeah, that's true. They're like my 8,000 pound life. Or yeah, my, 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 my big ton life or you yeah. have hoarders. But then you also have um, – you know, you you have that desire to go back to these freak shows. Like you have, 
Like the one one I remember was the two girls. You know, the, they shared one body but the two heads mm-hmm. who just want to go to school. And I think they're teachers now. And it's just that moment of, of not disgust, but it's that moment of surprise that I think our, our modern culture has evolved into. I, I think we're better people overall today. But I don't think we get that without movies like Freaks. I think yeah. I think it humanizes people. Oh, totally. And I think you need. I, I think it, I, I mean it's, it's totally natural to want to look at and and like almost like study. I mean, like in a very loose way, study somebody who visually studies somebody who is you've never seen anything like them before. I mean, whether it's they're beautiful or whether it's because they look weird. But I think it's totally human of us to want to be like I, man this person is is it's like exotic it's like i want to know more about this person i want to see them like what they how they live their lives and and whether it's you know the kardashians or whether it's uh, <laughs> uh or it's whether it's conjoined i would take let's see every day of the week over the Kardashians. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah and and, and it's i mean I'm, I'm gonna kind of lump these two movies a little bit here uh sure and it starts off that way at the beginning of Elephant Man with uh, Anthony Hopkins' character, and he's like guilty about it, and he's like, "I wanted to see, but I wanted to study this person and see what they're like. But did I do it for myself, or did I do it for him, or did I do it just out of curiosity?" Or, um, and there's really not a right or wrong answer. I don't think. I think at the end of the day, it, it just has to do with your intention, and if you are not trying to be mean and if you're not trying to be cruel or exploit these people as Cleopatra does or as Hercules does and make fun of them at the you know just for your own sake for your own amusement I think that um, it'll always lead to something more beneficial for everybody and for humanity I, that's how I see of course it. you know going back though I mean this story is not even new um, we'll go no. back a little bit we'll go back to the hunchback in Notre Dame oh yeah or if we can go back to the Bible, for example, which I know you're more familiar with than I am, you have Jesus and the lepers. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the idea that you treat people with deformities as human beings. Yep. And I think that's another thing both freaks and, and have in common. And I don't want to spoil anything. No spoilers for a you know, 80-year-old movie. But um, both Elephant Man and Freaks have a line in common. And I never knew this until I was watching it. And I, mm-hmm. and I do have a clip from Freaks. And let me go ahead and set it up. It's when Cleopatra meets uh, Hans, and she, you know he she's laughing, and Hans is like, "Are you laughing at me?" Let me let me play that clip real quick. Are you laughing at me? Why, no, Monsieur. Thanks, I'm glad. Why should I laugh at you? Most big people do. They don't realize I'm a man with the same feelings they have. You know, and so that's very evocative of when the elephant, John Merrick and the elephant man says, I'm a human being, you know, I'm not an animal, I'm a man. It's the same. It's the same thing. And it's an assertion that you're a human being and you're deserving of feelings and not to be exploited. And and I think the power of freaks is that the these these people stand up for themselves. They assert themselves. They're not allowed to be. They're not like John Merrick in Elephant Man, who is constantly and forever like at no point does he stand up for himself at, except for that he's mm-hmm. he constantly has resigned himself to being a non-human which is which is what makes that movie tragic we can get into later but going back well, and also there's yeah. strength in numbers too right because john merrick <laughs> is the only freak that we see in that movie whereas uh you know uh, hans has this whole crew of people who have his back um who are like him and they all yes. kind of bond together 
Um, Which is a theme of the film, by the way, the solidarity yeah. of the, the, the quote-unquote freaks. Like, we, we'll yeah. get into that in a minute. Um, but let's get the most important thing out of the way real quick, is that a lot of people that would have been described as freaks would no longer be described as freaks today, not because it's politically incorrect, but you have, um, you know, you have, uh, goodness gracious, you have Olga uh, Roderick as the bearded lady. We would no longer look at that as a freak. You know, we yeah. would, we would, um, we also have the hermaphrodite, uh, who is the, who plays the hermaphrodite just in general. I mean, the names are not important really, but today we would understand like intersex as a naturally occurring thing, you know, as a chromosomal thing. We, we have transgender people who, who manifest their differences like this. We, we have an acceptance, I think, of people who are different that is way beyond what anything was in 1932. I mean, we have, we have A-list actors who are, who are little people too. We do. In fact, um... Uh, I mean, Dinklage, Peter Dinklage is going to be the starring in Cyrano. Peter Dinklage, you have, or I would even going to say Warwick Davis. Um, and what's fun about it, I got to tell you, there's something cool. I'm not going to lie to you. There's something really damn cool about someone like Peter Dinklage being a major actor and not having to take little people roles. Oh, yeah. Um, because he is, I, do you remember when he was in Avengers Endgame and he actually played a giant? Which is yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I just think it's fun. I think it's I think it's great. Um, we have Tony Cox, who's like super cool and everything he's in. Exactly, and I love Tony Cox. And I think I do think you get that because cinema has a way of exposing things. It has a way of presenting or just exposure. Because if you think about it, isn't this true? Like you always see the carnival barkers building it up. Oh, the mother was stomped by an elephant, and yeah. the, we don't know of which they came and through the jungles, and they. Part of the freak show was creating this fake autobiography, and that was part of the touring show. And because no one wants to see Joe Schmo, they want to know you're half man, half mermaid, or or you, you're this or that. Yeah. You you couldn't just been born in Brooklyn, you know. Yeah. You know you had to have people like that, and that creates an exoticism that can never match up. And you only see these people for a second, right? You don't really stare at them. It, the show's only what five minutes. And then you go away. Like uh, John Merrick, you know, he made all his money off a pamphlet that was written for him that, yeah. you know, fraudulized his background. So, yeah, but when you actually have experience with something, and I think that speaks to humanity's ability to to be accepting. I, and, totally, I think, yeah. and I think cinema lets you do that better than any other medium, to be honest with you. Yeah, I do. You and can I, visit different – you can go to different – worlds whereas you know on this even a stage play which is the most similar you can't you don't feel like you're in a different world usually you feel you still know you're in a seat in a you know whereas in a movie you can straight up get lost in it you're in a different location well and you know we, we go going back to vhs for a minute um vhs allows you well not just vhs but let's just say for all intents and purposes vhs yep. versus cinema you can revisit over and over pause take a break you know it's you can watch something and you're not bound by the reveal you know, the, ah, when you see something for the first time. Um, I was really, I was really taken aback when I was watching it this time. A uh, scene that really struck me was not the, not the, the Hans or the, uh, the Daisy character, but it was, um, oh, what's his name? Oh, Johnny Eck as Half-Boy, you know, the, the man oh, who runs yeah. around his hands. There's a scene when he's just walking up like, hey, how you doing? Hey, try that joke. He's just talking. Yeah. And you forget that he doesn't have any legs. Yeah. Because these are just people talking, and that's the mundanity. You see them eating, drinking, all that stuff, stuff that would be exotic. But at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Like, Super they're cool. not they're not asking for help. Yeah. 
That's super pretty... cool. And he and he's uh, and he's in, and he's friends with a clown guy, right? And it, the, who who has that awesome bathtub gag? Which yeah, I the clown sucks. I mean, his gags all suck. <laughs> and that's a, that's a that's a thing too. Is that the the one able-bodied person doesn't have a gimmick because he's terrible at being a clown. Yeah, yeah. But like the other guy has a lisp and he can't, you know. But he but he, but he marries he, but he the find, he, he marries the Siamese. Yeah, yeah, he finds solace though in in you know. Uh, marrying the the conjoined twin. I mean, well, one of them, uh, one of the conjoined twins, and uh, you know, they they find. Uh, well, well, that was the joke, right? Like, yeah. one he marries one of the twins, and then another guy marries the other twins, and they're talking like, "Oh, you must come visit us sometime." Oh, yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> you know, it just that's got to be awkward. Yeah. But um, my favorite part of the movie though is Prince Randy and as the living torso. He doesn't have a lot, oh, yeah. but he's got that one scene in the mud where he's carrying the the knife in his mouth. And for those who don't know, he doesn't have any arms or legs, so he's kind of got a, he's got to inch his way forward, like rolling, and he's got this big old knife in his mouth, and I'm like, what the hell is he gonna do with that? Like, <laughs> what's he gonna do? He well, can't. Well, you see what he did with a cigarette. Yeah. But I was reading, I was reading up on that guy. You know, he could shave himself. He had married head. Like awesome. this, yeah, this guy's a player. But um, but yeah, they they deserve respect, and I I I think this movie gets unfairly maligned, and I think. It doesn't get enough credit for for actually not exploiting these people. Like that yeah. must have been that must have been terrifyingly like um, hard to do. Yeah. And it would never be done now, by the way. Um, and I think it is valuable. I think I think some movie like this is infinitely valuable because because of the fact that you can't um, you wouldn't be able to make it today. Yet you can have a TV show about a nine thousand pound woman, but you can't yeah. have a, a a movie like this. Well, exactly. Like, t- the, it has to be about exploitation. Yeah, it would be, it would be preachy too if they made something like this now. Anyway, it would have it would have very um, melodramatic, manipulative music. Yeah, it's like I just want to be there's normal. No, well, there's no music in this barely. Like, there's no score. Like, everything is is uh is silent. I think Dracula didn't have a score either, if I remember correctly. You know, I've never been a big fan of the original Bela Lugosi Dracula. Oh, oh man, I love it. Did you hear? Um, not to. Did you hear Nicolas Cage was just hired to be Dracula? Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I'm gonna watch it. That's that's something else. <laughs> that's that's something. So real quick. So yeah. what's your favorite moment of Freaks? I love. I I, I kind of get a kick out of the uh, the the ending where she's a where she's. A duck. <laughs> spoiler! Spoiler! Spoiler alert! If she's a duck, uh, but I I do really love. Um, just kind of the the moment with I forget the clown's name and Schlitzie. I just love that little moment. You really get to see uh, Schlitzie just have his personality just coming out. And um, and I, I mean, this movie's great at all that. It, it really showcases each one of its its stars and and what they can do. And and you know, are we talking about Frozen, like our clown guy who uh, who's terrible, but he's so nice to Schlitzie? Yeah, it's, it's and the other. I, I love that guy. And 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 well and then and then the other scene where the I, I really like the the Frozo and then the scene where you think he's taking a bath but he's really working on this bathtub gimmick with the wheels on it exactly <laughs> yeah he's um I'm glad you brought that scene because that's one of my favorites too um because the way he talks to them if you've ever dealt with people with developmental disabilities like he's doing exactly what you do you don't talk down to them you talk to them. And you you don't you don't condescend you don't baby talk he's he's treating them like uh, I would say little girls mm-hmm. saying I'm going to buy you a great dress I'm going to buy you a big thing and he's so nice to them and he treats them like human beings and they respond to that and I sometimes I wonder when people criticize this film what 
what are they watching? Did they did they put it on pause and just forget certain scenes were there? Yeah. I mean, okay, true, true. They do get revenge and they do amputate someone and turn her into a duck, but it's that's not much. That's not yeah. a big part of the film. Yeah, but it, but it's almost like celebratory, like the way that they get the revenge. Well, know? I would say my favorite part of the, my favorite scene in the movie though is when um clearly when Cleopatra is, you know, I don't want to say romancing, but when she's manipulating and poisoning or trying to poison Hans, you find out there's a big reveal that Hans knew this all along and just calls her slimy. <laughs> and you realize he's been joking like they're not stupid that they've been plotting revenge. And I think that's fantastic. He's he's a fun actor too. Um, and I, I mean, there's a couple of scenes where he's mouthing the other lines, but obviously that means yeah. this is an old movie. But um, he's just he's just got great screen presence too. I think him and and his, uh, his sister, aka yeah. his fiance. They're they're very interesting too because they're not great actors by any stretch, no. but they have a vulnerability that is real. Oh yeah, especially the girl. I mean, you really feel. Like, this woman, Cleopatra, is not just amusing herself. She is screwing with somebody else's life mm-hmm. and, like, ruining her life. And, and well, I mean, almost killing, obviously, Hans. But, um, like, you really feel for, uh, was it uh, Frida? Was Frida? It Fr- uh, well, yeah. As, uh, as Frida, yeah, she's a.k.a. the, the, the fiancé. Yeah, I mean, you really feel for her. And, uh, and um, I think that's where, like, most of the sadness for me comes is, is just the fact that that this woman is just totally like ruining this. Well, first this she's she's life. doing it for. At, well, the problem is first she's doing it because she's spiteful, like yeah. she's just a a mean person, and yeah. then she finds out that Hans has an inheritance. Oh yeah. And then it gets she gets even more dastardly, and that's where it <laughs> yeah. comes in. That's where things turn take a turn for the bloody, and I mean not bloody. This this film has no blood in it. When the first time I watched this, I had a hard time differentiating between Venus and Cleopatra. Did you, did you have that same problem? A little bit. Um, can I be honest with you? Yeah. I, I don't particularly find um, female representation in some of the old Hollywood films to be that fantastic. I think there's a big emphasis on sex appeal. Yeah. And the the style of acting a lot of actresses did at the time, I I find grating. Yeah. Like, oh, we're oh, doing yeah. this. Oh, yeah, do this. I'll declare. And yeah, it's just, Venus, it's yeah, hard Venus for me. Spe- yeah, she has some lines that I'm like, oh, man, that that she probably does the worst acting of all of them. Uh, Layla Himes. Layla Himes. But you know what, yeah. though? She's Her presence, though, she is just like Frozo, the uh, the clown. Yeah. She's nice, and she sticks up for them. And so she she and Fro- um, Venus and Frozo are the, are the nice couple as opposed to Cleopatra and Hercules. Who are the the nasty couple, and I think it takes a lot. And and what's so funny though is you brought this up the traveling circus. This entire thing takes place within the context of the traveling circus. This is an insular, isolated thing. This doesn't affect anybody else. But let's talk about the one other scene that's become iconic, and that is the you know the scene I'm talking about, the gooba gobble scene. Oh yeah. The one of us, one of us. Uh, this is this scene was the hardest one for me to watch because. It starts off with, I believe it's Cuckoo. Is it the ostrich lady, or is is that the one? Yeah, the yeah. Uh, in real life, Minnie Woolsey. And I look at this, and she's one of those characters today that I don't even think would be classified as a freak. Um, she's a little different looking, but other than that, a lot of it's costume. Yeah. And she's on the table dancing, and she's doing this dance, and I don't find it entertaining at all. I find it exploitive, yeah. and I I wasn't comfortable with that scene. 
But you know the scene I'm talking about. Is she, now, is this where Cleopatra's getting engaged to Hans? Is this, um, is this the idea? Ju- I think they just got married. Married? No, I, you're, talking about, you're talking about the Google, Google Gobble stuff. Yeah, where, where they, yeah. they initiate her into become one of us, one of us. Yeah, I think she's technically... I think they just got married, I believe. Now, um, because that's why he's, she's trying to poison him, because they got married. Yeah, and to be clear, this movie is very abbreviated in places. Um, it, it doesn't yeah. waste a lot of time, and this movie speeds right by. You could watch this thing in an hour. So, yeah. but let me play this clip, because this is probably the most iconic scene in the film. think you would agree that as opposed to like a zombie scene when you become a zombie or when you're indoctrinated into a cult you have to kill somebody these people are very accepting and welcoming yeah and they're they're not saying become one of us become evil they're saying we accept you because you're you know you're a person and and of course it doesn't go well with cleopatra who becomes bitter and nasty and, and makes and a scene of it literally be later becomes one of them <laughs> literally <laughs> tarred and feathered duck lady that scene's been parodied. It's been mocked. It's it's the idea of it. The chanting, the rhythmic chanting, out gets more and more. But no, but the the quote unquote freaks are very nice and very fun, and they seem like they'd be a good time to party with. Yeah. But passing on that booze. But no, it's um, yeah. I don't I don't know what else there is to say um, about freaks as a film other than it is very much a product of its time. I don't like you said. I don't think it would ever happen today. No, not not this effectively. I don't think. No, um, but I do think though, Ethan, if you're if you're willing to go here, I do think it leads really well into our next film. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the next film we're going to talk about. Next movie we're talking about is 1980s The Elephant Man, uh, uh, directed by David Lynch, starring Anthony Hopkins. And John Hurt as his name is John Merrick in the movie, but it's they've realized his real name in real life was Joseph Merrick, yes, um, the Elephant Man, who who um, basically was in a freak show and or you know there's got to be an, it wasn't a show but um, what did, what would they call it back then I guess uh, well yeah this is this would be what Victorian era so yeah. Nineteenth century. Yeah, they had a name for these type of shows. I don't, it, I don't remember it either. Yeah. But I know. What but you're but it, about. it was, it was basically just him, and he was, uh, quote unquote, owned by this man who, you know, made money off of his deformity. He, who was had uh, this disease, which basically had these benign growths all over his body. He couldn't lie down like a normal person; otherwise, he would, he would uh, suffocate. And he, I mean, he makes. Uh, a lot of these, the freaks from the 1932 movie look, uh, you know, normal. He really, I mean, this is based on a real guy, and and, and 
I, from what I understand, it w- not a lot of this movie was exaggerated for cinematic purposes. Obviously, some of the symbolism probably was, or definitely was. But um, you really don't, the, as far as the story is concerned, a lot of it was pretty close, or at least some version of that actually happened. And which makes the movie, as a biopic, it's very audacious. Um, just the fact that this was actually a true story. Exactly. Um, I would say you already addressed the big one that his name was Joseph instead of uh, John. Yeah. But but I think that's that that's a testament to how accurate it actually is. Like a lot of the inaccuracies were just mischaracterizations, but they weren't made out of whole cloth the way like the autobiographies were exaggerated. Yeah, well, well, the John Joseph thing, I think, came from Frederick Trevis, who's Anthony Hopkins' character. The real guy, he wrote a diary, and in the diary, a couple of times he referred to him as John. Yeah, and I think, I wonder if that has to do with, um, you know, Merrick's real speech impediment. And the yeah. fact that he, you know, he he either didn't know or he didn't, wasn't able to relate his entire biography to, to Trevis. Yeah. You know, um, who by all accounts did a, did a, did a pretty heroic job trying to, well, I, I would say he's the. I would say he's played by Anthony Hopkins in the film. Um, I don't know if I'd call him the hero of the story. I don't know if that word is appropriate, but he's a, a chronicler of John Merrick's humanity. How's that? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and he, and and, and uh, throughout the movie, I mean, he he uh, goes into a joint venture with the circus guy who who. Uh, has the rights to John Merrick's um, exposition, and uh, he, but he's a doctor. So Travis is a doctor at the London Hospital, and he's like, I want to, you know, study John Merrick and and see, you know, learn about him and stuff. And um, and what ends up happening is is John Merrick ends up living at the hospital as a full time resident, uh, much to the dismay of a lot of the board members. But uh, with a great scene later with yes. uh, Queen Victoria. Yes, well, Queen Victoria sends a note uh, regarding that to the proprietor yeah. of the hospital. And oh my gosh, yeah, that's um, one of my favorite scenes. Every scene it's very in this good. Movie, yeah, I mean, this is David Lynch's second movie. I'm not a huge Eraserhead fan. It's very uh, obtuse to me. I'm not even a big uh, Blue Velvet or Dune fan. Uh, but as far as his early movies, I think this is uh, by far his best. Well, I think this ever. is. Be- I think this is his best film. Um, yeah, yeah, you can make it. Yeah, definitely. I think I think so too. But I know people love other movies he's done. Well, uh, it was but, certainly Tim Burton's favorite film. Yeah, <laughs> because I mean, he's based yeah. his whole career off this movie. Yeah, it, and it does have that very like kind of snow globey, even though it's set in just cobblestone nineteenth century London. But it very much feels like it's in this world of that's just kind of locked in place. Um, and uh, talk, we're talking about uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of Quasimodo uh, parallels here with the, you know, the bell tower. He can see the bell tower. He lives in like an attic type of place as Quasimodo lived in the bell tower. Um, he has a caretaker who exploits him, but for a different reason uh, initially. Whereas Claude Frollo, Quasimodo's caretaker, is totally just exploiting him uh, maliciously. Um, you have a lot of cool parallels there. Obviously, there's the Christ parallel, which uh, David Lynch, uh, I think, makes a lot of. I, th- I I mean, it's 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 not obtrusive, but it's definitely um, overt. I think, uh, but I think it's done in a really uh, beautiful way. Just with the even just the line at the end where he says it's finished, referring to his model of the church, which is obviously exactly what Jesus' last words on the on the cross. 
um, I, I, I mean, this movie, I think, is a masterclass for just symbolism and, you know, Chekhov's guns and just all that stuff and just and set design. I mean, this movie to me is one of the one of the perfect movies for me. I, it's one of my favorites ever. It's probably my favorite biopic. Uh, I just love Elephant Man. This movie is awesome. I think this movie's become very iconic uh, for different reasons, um, and a lot of it has to do with I think the movie, not so much the movie itself, but the the, the hype around the film. Um, for example, uh, we don't do it very often, but we talk about Roger Ebert, and Roger Ebert was very very critical of this film when it came out, and I think it's one of the cases when if you watch like his old um, at the movies with Gene Siskel. Siskel actually has to correct Roger Ebert and Roger Ebert is guilty of doing something that I think afflicts a lot of movie critics today and I think this is a good time to talk about it where Roger Ebert seems to be holding the film accountable for what the promoters are doing to the film uh, he was criticizing the way that um, they weren't allowed to show the Merrick makeup and that they they basically agreed that this was exploitive very reminiscent of the elephant man himself and Siskel has to correct Ebert and say well that's not the film's fault and sometimes I think uh, people who review films, we hold the filmmakers, like we say, oh, I don't like this actor, so I'm going to hate this film, or we hold the studio relatable. It's like when you order something on Amazon and the product's fine, but your box has a dent in it, so you give it one star. Yeah, oh, yeah. You I know, it's, like, it's yeah. like this is why not everybody can be critics. And it's a very, it's a very interesting case where I don't necessarily think Roger Ebert was wrong, I and mean, it's his opinion, but I do think he, his – summation of the film was wrong and I think he was I don't think he was in a good place to, to adequately judge this film in a way I think a lot of other people were able to see and again I'm not trying to say he's wrong but I'm just trying to say that I I think it it deserves a closer look than I think Ebert gave it yeah it, yeah you can't be my it's hard not to but you can't be myopic when you're looking at a movie and, and you have to look at them as living breathing things even though they're finite mm-hmm. They're they're constantly as time goes on. They're you know as time passes, as years pass, it affects movies. And so in that sense, they are living, breathing things, and they do and they do change. Um, and so you have to look. And I mean, and not only that, there's dynamics to it. There's you know so many. I mean, you can talk about infinite things when it comes to movies. That's why there are inf- infinite reviews for a lot of movies. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, like you said, I mean, if Ebert. They are watching movie is a subjective experience. It has to do with your own life experiences. If he got rubbed the wrong way by something, you know that's he's entitled to that. But you, yeah, you do have to. It's hard to kind of balance objective and subjective because there are some objective, I think, aspects to movies that are that you can take subjectively. Well, you know, you see this a lot with Disney films today, where Disney will try to manipulate the the rating systems of Rotten Tomatoes, or they'll try to. Um, you know, market a film as being like aggressively feminist or aggressively diverse, and then you see the film, and it's not any of those things. And clearly, the attempt was try to stimulate one audience member, while you know inflaming another. But when you actually see the film itself, it's quite innocent. You know, and you, we see this happen quite a bit. And unfortunately, marketing is marketing is both necessary and a disease of the film going experience. You need to get the film in front of people, so you need to advertise it. And sometimes the best way to advertise is to exploit, which is, in a way, exactly what the freak shows are. They're exploiting. They're creating false negatives, you know. And that's just that's something you have to see past. And hopefully, I think audiences accepted this film. I think this film is beloved by people. I think it's beloved by critics. 
um, it's really hard to find a negative take on this film. And yeah. let's get into it. Um, you mentioned David Lynch. Uh, let's just say this, though. I think if you were to take this film and you were to dissect it and you were to say, okay, this is the directing, this is the cinematography, this is the acting, this is the effects, this is the sound. I think on every single level, on every layer of this onion, this movie is superb on everything. I don't think it, there's a there's a shy note in this film at all. Um, can we just start with the acting real quick? Oh, yeah. Uh, let's just talk about this. So The Elephant Man is filled with great actors, all of them. Uh, well, I just felt Kenny Baker's in this film. Did you know that? Um, go as figure. You. As a dwarf. Um, oh, really? Yeah, of course. Oh, well, okay. what else are you going to be? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess I didn't remember. I didn't remember. Uh, he's, well, you know, but I mean, this is, bef- this is right. R2-D2, yeah. yeah is right after. Um, so I've got a question for you, though. Is Anthony Hopkins the greatest actor of all time? Or is he oh just the greatest actor of our time? He's so good. Ah, oh, geez. He, everything he does. Like, even the layers that he just implies into his characters, even with, even though they're not written that way at all, is spectacular. I mean, even even with Trevis. Is that how you say it, Trevis? Uh, I don't know. I think it's Treves or it could Treves? be. Yeah, I, 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 I forget how they say it, but I just, um, I, he's just always Anthony Hopkins to me. I, I mean, just like the subtle, the way he just, the way he talks. He, he's he's this doctor, esteemed doctor, you know, um, very well respected, highly regarded, um, and so when he's in these professional settings, he can he's using these like very proper professional uh, like a lilt, yes, almost to, to his talking, but then like he very subtly moves into these relaxed colloquialisms, like when he's uh, with his wife or just with John or just with um, you know uh, some you know somebody uh, the I forget the guy who owned John at the beginning. Um, Mr. Bites. But, yeah, Mr. Yeah, Mr. Bites. But then over the course of the film, he kind of fuses these together. Just like you don't even notice it. Uh, well, I, I, adjectives. You know. Well, adjectives are important in this film, and so are pronouns. Yeah. Um, when you first hear when when he first wants to when he first talks to Mr. Bites and he sees the attraction, which is closed down by the police, he says, "Can I see it?" And yeah, then when he, he sends the when he says the boy. Um, the boy, by the way, we have to talk about that boy is, um, what was it? Is Dexter Fletcher, who's now a award-winning director. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch that. I saw that in your notes. Yeah, That's he, crazy. uh, he directed, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, well, part of Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman. Go figure. Yeah. He's an actor. No, but when he fetches him, he's like, did you find it? He's like, I found it. Can we see it? It's it. He, he, and you can clearly tell he's doing it, he's doing it because he wants to exploit, for the exact same reasons, so to speak, he wants to exploit it for his scientific, um, as a scientific curiosity, which he does, yep. and he gets confronted on it. So, going back though, uh, goodness gracious, where do we start? Um, can we just say this? We're talking about a movie that's almost forty-two years old, of which Anthony Hopkins was—I think he was he nominated for Best Actor. So this um, this movie is <laughs> this movie is ten years earlier than Silence of the Lambs, yeah. and just this year Anthony Hopkins again won the Best Actor for The Father. <laughs> At the end of the awards, um, yeah, that I mean, laughably, <laughs> and sandwiched in between those two things is Transformers. So, yay, <laughs> and Marvel, and Marvel, yeah. and and Clash, and everything Odin. else. Yeah, yeah, he's so, so good. He, he's the range on this guy is incredible, and um, and then let's not forget, of course, John Hurt, who oh, yes. you can't even see, you can barely see his face, and the kind of uh, the, like he has this just pounds of makeup on that 
doesn't allow for any subtleties in his uh, in his facial expressions yet. Like there's so much to this guy's performance, and there's just like this energy and this like soul that's coming out of. This I guy. wonder, um, was he was he recorded after? Or did he record his voice while while making? Because it's because it's hard to tell with the breathing and the slurring. Yeah, but. I'm yeah. guessing it was it was it was on film because a lot of the stuff's very hard to understand. Like I had to have some of the subtitles on when he talks. Um, and that was clearly intentional, though. But yeah, and of course he, he progressively he progressively gets better. Um, in real life, I think there were surgeries to help him correct his speech, but I don't think the film actually delves into that. There's only one surgical scene when you see that medi- almost medieval surgical practice with the ropes. And the burning when they're trying to help when Anthony Hopkins operating on that man. But um, but let's just say this: uh, everybody's great. So we have Anthony Hopkins, we have John Hurt, we have Anne Bancroft, we have the great John. I can't pronounce his name. Jiglude, who's who's fantastic, and he plays the owner of the the runner of the hospital, and that great scene you talked about where he ends up uh, taking Anthony Hopkins' side. It's one of the it's one of the premier scenes in the film, I think, because oh, yeah. in most films that character would would be an antagonist, but he's clearly not. He's clearly on the side of humanitarians. Yeah, and and it's funny like nowadays, um, a lot of these, I mean, obviously characters now it feels like every movie they're painted as gray instead of you know black or white. Exactly. Um, whereas literally, I, I feel like, but but it's there's almost like an. It's there's so much intention behind it, and it's it's like so back and forth, and like whereas in back then you could have a guy who was not unlikable, but he was just kind of like, you know, you kind of look at him sideways, like what are you doing, dude? And then you see his evolution, and to me, I like that better um, because he's not a villain, he's not a protagonist, obviously, he's not a, but you see this guy going over the course of the movie to become. Um, understanding and and, and and in turn it's not it doesn't say anything about him necessarily it says something about about John Merrick and about um, Frederick Friedrich um, yes. and and just th- how not only you know not only is 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 Friedrich helping John but John is uh, impacting everyone around him just by that door being opened to um, allowing him to be a human. I, I agree with you, but I want to add to that. Um, sure. Modern films have this tendency to not trust the audience to come to conclusions. They have to be they have to be led like a horse to water. And I'm not trying to say all films do this, but a modern film uh, that usually wears its emotions on its sleeve. And when it comes to modern uh, biographies, they 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 become very comfortable with uh, amalgamating characters and changing the and changing the the histories of characters to suit themselves, like. Turning, turning, you know, characters into bad guys, into obstacles, into, into, you know, into reticents and antagonists. And I think what's so great about the Elephant Man is that, not saying it doesn't do that inadvertently, but what it does, though, it it focuses more on our audience. I would say, as the audience, our evolution into compassionate observers, the same way everyone else in the film does. Um, my favorite scene in the film, and there's tons of scenes in this film, uh, is the one, and I don't know where where to start. But the evolution comes from the nurses. The nurses, for example, when they're told to, like, like when you first, when when John Merrick is first revealed to Anthony Hopkins, the camera stays on Hopkins' face for like 15, 20 seconds, and he's crying, he's weeping, 
and he doesn't say anything. It's 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 a very powerful moment. But when when the nurse first sees Merrick, she screams, and he has to confront her. But as the film goes by, the nurses not only be, uh, care for Merrick, they come to care for him, for him. And do you know the scene I'm talking about where it's when Mrs. Motherheads, aka uh, played by Wendy Hiller, confronts Trevis about Merrick being exploited, because at this point Merrick's living in the hospital and. Uh, Trevis is inviting the, the upper crust to come and visit him. And much to, I think, Merrick's delight, however, the nurse has a different opinion of it. And let me play this scene real quick between Hopkins and um, Mrs. Motherhead. Here we go. Excuse me, sir, but at this time I, I would like a word with you. Motherhead, what is it? Well, sir, I don't quite, I don't quite understand why it is you allow that sort of people in there. Why? Because he enjoys it and I think it's very good for him. Yes, but, sir, you saw the expression on their faces. They didn't hide their disgust. They don't care anything about John. They only want to impress their friends. I think you're being rather harsh on them, don't you, Mrs. Mother? I beg your pardon, sir. You yourself hardly showed much loving kindness when you first arrived, did you? I bathed him. I fed him and I cleaned up after him, didn't I? Yes. And I see that my nurses do the same. Yes. And if loving kindness can be called care, and practical concern, then I did show him loving kindness and I am not ashamed to admit it. I didn't mean it exactly that way, Mrs. Mothersett. Now, please believe me. Now, of course I appreciate your concern. I appreciate everything that you've done for Mr. Merrick. Thank you. But I am the physician in charge and I, I must do what I think is best for him. Please, now, I'm also very late. If you ask my opinion, he's only being stared at all over again. Thank you. I've got a question for you. Yeah. Is the Elephant Man a feminist film? Um, I'm, I mean, I didn't see that, but I mean, there, there's definitely. I mean, there's. I think it's like you're talking about like the old school feminism, well, right? Well, Not old like, school. No, old school feminism in that it is. Um, it is the women who experience like the most overt like changes in the film in some in some respect. You know, where you have um, again when you have Mrs. Motherhead sticking up, you have the nurses. Uh, coming over, and then you have—I mean, you have this—you have this thorough, thorough line that women are able to help initiate. Like, for example, when the scene when uh, Queen Victoria's handler comes in, or even let's just talk about some devastating scenes when um, Trevis introduces Merrick to his wife, oh, and yeah. the wife—you know—she's not the doctor; she's clearly been recruited in this, but she shows kindness to John, and John. You know, he starts crying. He's like, "I've never been, I've never been touched by a woman. No one's ever looked at me with kindness." Like it is, it's sort of that becomes the impetus in some ways, and you know, like it's, it's, it's. At least the film doesn't present the women's kindness as being as exploitive as the men's, so to speak. Yeah, um, I, I do, and then obviously the uh, with the queen and all that that whole scene too. Um, and the actress who's awesome um, is that Anne, that's Anne Bancroft, right? I think it's yeah, Anne Bancroft's here. By the way, can we just say this real quick? We got to get this out of the way. Uh, this is another Mel Brooks joint. Um, yes, the fly. The fly. <laughs> well, because Mel Brooks had just made a Young Frankenstein is a huge hit, and so when we're talking about a black and white film, like Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks oh, and yeah. David Lynch themselves were both huge supporters of, of returning black and white film, and it's yeah, it's pretty so fantastic. And Scorsese, yeah, this is this was a renaissance of black and white. It didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, I think it finally ended with Frankenweenie by Tim Burton. <laughs> we had the artist also. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, back back in this era of like late seventies, eighties. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, the early yeah. Yeah. Totally. Going back um, to Tim Burton again. Whew. But no, I I just I I thought about it though because the the female characters in this film are so specifically feminine, and but that feminine yeah. that femininity comes through is empathy. Um, yeah. And they're showing they're, they're which is which is expressed differently than I think the men's empathy. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think in that regard, it's it is. I mean, it might be one of the reasons why I like it. I mean, it is kind of a. It has a lot of conservative themes in it, um, as far as you know the the uh, showing that like the you know uh, you know the 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 way that both uh, men and women have their own unique ways of kind of uh, affecting the life of this person. Mm-hmm. Um, and both valued ways uh and obviously the women in this movie are i mean held at the highest regard there's i don't think there's a single woman villain in the movie no um that i can think of and um yeah i i mean and then the scene every scene with Anne bancroft i i think i cried (laughs) it's just so moving i mean this movie is endlessly moving and um especially the that uh the theater scene you're talking about towards the end Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, Every, yeah. It's so good. I there's a, this. I have so many feelings and thoughts about that scene. Um, so, incredible. so when this film came out, it was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Um, not, not. I think you and I both agree that the Academy Awards are no barometer necessarily no. for if a movie's good or not. But they're the. It's the best indicator of what we have historically. I, I, I will say historically, best picture nominees have um, always still been pretty good. Uh, I mean, I know you get lately when they expanded it to ten, it kind of less Dim- so, diminished. But, yeah, but old back then, I think that uh, you watch, you watch most of those Best Picture nominees, and you're like, these are great movies. Um, uh, obviously, there were some snubs too, but um, you can't nominate them all. Uh, and Elephant Man, I, I mean, after I watched Eraserhead, I, which was I, this was the second movie i had third movie i'd seen of david lynch's and i wasn't a fan of the other two at, but when i first watched elephant man and i watched this and i was like holy mackerel this is a movie um well this is the year that um excuse me the it was the 50 53rd academy Awards. this is the year when you, raging bull was nominated uh this and elephant man were nominated for the most they were ordinary people win ordinary player? people yeah by yeah. robert redford and yeah but yeah but elephant man like i said right uh, Raging Bull both got nominated for eight Academy Awards, tied tied each other. Elephant Man won nothing. But you look at it though; I mean, it was nominated for best picture, best actor, best director, best editing, original score. Um, and Ordinary People is a good film, and I'm not trying to pit them against each other. Yeah. But I, but I think over time, and this is this is the thing. I think we should have a sequel to Academy Awards. I think, <laughs> I think 20 years later we should reevaluate them because because we forget that the Academy Awards are of are democratic they're voting like there's yeah. campaigns and everything and and i hate to like pull the the curtain back and reveal the you know reveal the oz reveal the man behind the curtain and i hate to tell you that santa's not real but the academy works are not real like yeah. th- there's they're they're symptomatic of of cronyism like like especially during the weinstein days when weinstein like when he would have like four out of five best picture nominees he he knew who would win because he basically engineered it and you know because and you know this as well as I do is that the Academy Awards are a bargaining chip for um, what's the word I'm looking for for uh, contract contract negotiations like you win an Academy Award you're you're worth more such and such you know it's all marketing 
But you look at something like Elephant Man, you look at the other films that were nominated that year. Oh my goodness. What other films were nominated for Best Picture? Let me double check real quick. So you had, of course, Elephant Man, Raging Bull. You had Tess. Do you ever see Tess? No, I've never seen Tess. Uh, Roman Polanski film. I actually almost... uh, What'd you say about... Sorry, what'd you say? Oh, I think uh, Tess was, I think, Roman Polanski. Okay. And, and then Coal Miner's Daughter, I almost watched recently, and, and we ended up not watching it, but I do want to see that one. And, uh, and of course, Best Director, let's just say this real quick. Um, goodness gracious, I can't talk. Uh, David Lynch nominated, Martin Scorsese, of course. Uh, the Stuntman. Did I ever? Did you ever watch The Stuntman? Did I ever no. see Okay, I have a copy of that film. I will let Who's you watch that? it. I love that film. Nobody that you know. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I, I love that film. It's it's just an anomaly, but let's let's not talk about that. Roman Polinski. 1980 is a good movie, a good year for a film, by the way. It was good film. That whole era was great for film, by the way. Even, even just like B, B movies. I mean, like, I mean, you had Empire Strikes Back, which, by the way, should have been nominated for Best Picture, but like you said, sequel. Critics n- but critics now call it the best, but at the time they did not. Blue, yeah, Blues Brothers, Airplane, Jeez, uh, Friday but, 13th. So Robert De Niro won for Best Actor over John Hurt. But you also had Robert Duvall, Jack Lemmon, Peter O'Toole from, again, The Stuntman. Uh, Let's see real quick. The Shining didn't get nominated also. That was the same year. Critics hated it. Now people love it. That's why I say I think we should get an Oscars too, where you get to reevaluate choices and you get to see how it went 20 years later. Because, you know, sometimes it's like, I I think movie awards are kind of like Italian food, like pizza. Like... Sometimes it tastes better when it's been reheated, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I yeah. think, you know, it's um, it's like Galileo Galilei, you know, when they, they put him in the tower and they said, ah, you, you heretic, what do you mean? What do you mean the earth revolves around the sun? So he had to recant and he said, okay, you're right, you're right. The sun revolves around the earth. <laughs> and, then, and then under his breath he said, and yet it moves. You know, yeah. like you can make somebody say something, you can tell me that, tell me with a straight face that Pulp Fiction is better than Forrest Gump. But at the end of the day, which movie makes me cry? And so, yeah. by the way, I cried during Hell of a Man. Can I be honest? Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. I, 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 it's definitely one of the, uh, as far as the most moving moving movies. I, I, have a, I have a letterbox list of my top, every movie that I consider my favorite. It's like 200 and something. This is one of maybe four dramas on the movie. I'm not a drama fan mm-hmm. usually. I mean, I, I I am a fan of them, but I, they I wouldn't. They don't have rewatchability usually for me. This is probably my favorite drama ever. Like something that's just no comedy, no, um, you know, action or anything like that. It's just straight drama, black and white, uh, pretty simple for all, all intents and purposes. Um, straightforward, and I mean, geez, this movie is just uh, it's. It's out of this world. Well, it's also buoyed by the fact that you have a almost unparalleled acting partnership of uh, Hopkins and John Hurt. <clears throat> yeah. And um, speaking of John Hurt, by the way, who I, I never thought was appreciated when he was alive. I mean, you you can pick out 15 great John Hurt performances, but his name was never mentioned in the same breath as Anthony Hopkins or Robert De Niro. But I don't understand why that is, because he's great. Um, he says, I, there's a famous quote, he says... If you go to the end without being moved, I don't think I want to know you about this film. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. He, all he did was bitch and moan when he made the film about how he hated <laughs> making it. But um, Well, yeah, because he had to wear, like, 40-pound makeup or something. He made this movie right around the time he made Alien. Yeah, that's crazy. And you know what's that's funny? Crazy. Now it all makes sense because he came back in Mel Brooks' Spaceballs playing the same character from Alien. Getting He's like, ah, shit, not again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But let's talk about let's talk about something else real quick though. Let's talk about film. Um, 
This film has been so copied and so mimicked and so parodied, like so ad infinitum. Uh, I would say, and I'm not joking here, that Tim Burton, I said this before, based his entire career off this film. Like stylistically, I think oh, he, yeah. I think the musical, I, our producer Chris Mitchell brought this up, like Batman Returns is basically a clone of this film. That's a good point, actually. That's a really good point. Like, even the movie, even even like when um, he, uh, you have Penguin, Danny DeVito's Penguin saying, I'm a man, you know, I'm not yeah. an animal, you know, mimicking that sort of thing. Wow, um, yeah, that's actually really a really good point. Um, yeah. Well, and, and then you even just have, like, just the, I mean, obviously, this is black, and, uh, Elephant Man's black and white, but uh, all the just, there's a really darkness to, like, almost like a chioscuro to, like, a color, in color chioscuro that, that I think. Tim Burton does really well, or back then he did really well, uh, especially in Bat- in the that in Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I mean, I mean, obviously, overhead shots is not a, no- a novel by any means, but Burton just even just his use of those things and just these establishing. I mean, who's a DP on Elephant Man? I forget his name, but he was, uh, I mean, he, this guy's incredible too. Yes, I, I was looking him up too. I want to talk about him for a second. So, are we talking about the cinematographer? The yeah, Freddie Francis. Yeah, Freddie Francis. Have you looked at what else Jeez, he's done? He's he's yeah. done he's done some other things with David Lynch. Glory. He's won two. He's won two Oscars for Sons and Lovers and Glory. Um, I mean, this guy he he did he did directing too, just straight up directing. He um the one movie he made that really struck me as just gorgeous, like one of the greatest looking movies he's ever done, is Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. Um, oh yeah. If you've ever watched Cape Fear, like in a high def version, please it. It's it's striking. The movie was made what in the '90s, but it looked like a '60s '70s film. It's so pretty, like it's so clear and crisp. Like you you almost forget how good movies looked before everything became CG. Well, yeah, and then even like movies like Dune, which I'm not a huge fan of, but it looks great. Like you can see the the cinematography in that movie is is great too. Um, he worked with Edward Zwick. Edward Zwick makes great looking movies too. By the way, yeah. I know he made Glory. I don't think he did. Um, I don't think he did the Last Samurai, but I know I know I know Glory's pretty pretty good. Yeah, yeah, Glory's great. Um, by school, the way, School Ties, which is I mean, got its own. Charm. Oh, by the way, Return to Oz. I don't know if we've ever talked about oh, yeah. that film, but Return, Return to Oz is one of the great sequels. That, oh my gosh! That, that it's on Disney Plus, I think. By the way, I just I <laughs> the movie. It's it's it just goes to show you that sometimes you cannot make a niche film for everybody. No. Um, good movie though. Uh, I really really enjoy it, but. Not iconic direct, recent. Well, and speaking of like horrifically horrific imagery, he directed some Hammer and Amicus horror movies in the sixties. Let's see, Freddie did Francis. He, he did uh, Doctor Terror's House of Horrors, like as, as a director, not not a DP. But oh wait, did he do the Evil Frankenstein? Yeah. Oh wow, like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, he did some of these. Uh, what was the other one? Nightmare. Oh, he did the Creeping Flesh. The Skull. I yeah. just watched that not too long ago. Oh, cool. Yeah, Trog. Trog. That wasn't a hammer movie, but everyone, everyone loves. Trog, I right? I am a huge uh, I am a huge Hammer film fan, especially from especially yeah. their, their early seventy stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, they. Yeah. They're not. So, they're not all great though. <laughs> no. Yeah. Some of them are, are really really bad. Yeah. They're, well, they become. They're, they're, they they crank them out. Can I we mean. just say this? They also become really uh, horny. Yeah. Yes, and talk about yeah, and well, and a lot of them kind of blend together. They all just kind of have it's the aesthetic, right? It's that. I think we amalgamate them and say we appreciate what Hammer did. I, I yeah. still think the Hammer versions of the Universal monsters are better. Um, yeah, with all due respect, 
Yeah. yeah, they're more like realistic, kind of. They're more realistic, and I think they add a necessary evolution to the characters. And <clears throat> mm-hmm. but I don't think they've ever been topped. I think the Hammer Films versions mm-hmm. are the best, and yeah. and I think you, without the Hammer Films, you don't have Star Wars. You don't have that. I I definitely yeah. think Lucas was. A, I mean, you can clearly see with the casting what he liked. Same with Peter Jackson. So, yeah. but um, but going back though, I mean, see this. See that's another thing. The Elephant Man is. It's such a great fountain of things that you can go. You can bank off of. Um, because every, like I said, every piece of this film you could explore independently. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, I mean, I mean, you even have. I I I had fun with the themes. I think the themes in this are really fun. Like you know, uh, we we talked already about you know the the distinct line between gawking and earnest curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, but another thing that's kind of fun is like the celebrities, like the status of celebrity and like, what does that mean? And the power of celebrity on influence in society and even the arbitrary means by which we define that celebrity. Whereas, you know, you see the guy who, who's like, no, I will, you will not change my opinion about, about this. And then <laughs> the queen comes in <laughs> and he's like, okay. And he raises his hand and it's unanimous. Um, and, and and even just the oddity of John Merrick and how it's not that dissimilar to this these aristocrats, uh, it just you know they're both very uh, kind of far removed from society in how we see the celebrities as kind of freaks in their own right. Well, one thing I'm really happy is that the film shows that Merrick was very talented. Um, it shows that oh, yeah. he had a, a penchant for Shakespeare. He was really good with crafting, despite only having one hand. But the film is really smart and very, very wise to not make that the reason he was exceptional. Um, it's not like a Dumbo situation where Dumbo's only special because he can fly. You know, with Merrick, um, and I think this comes through almost entirely because of the great acting of John Hurt. Um, let's just say this real quick. Uh, I have a clip, and I have I can't do this podcast without this clip. This is the most famous scene in the film. And you know what I'm talking about. It's the scene when he's getting off the boat and some kids are teasing him and he gets revealed to be, you know, quote unquote, the element of man. And he gets confronted in a very gross looking lavatory. Um, I didn't know they had uh, urinals back then, but whatever. Yeah, I, I didn't either. Uh, go figure. <laughs> but it's it's a disgusting scene, but it's it's heartbreaking. And when you and it's been so taken out of context now. But when you watch oh, the yeah. film, when it comes and you listen to his voice and what's funny is that John Hurt says the line twice. I never knew this. He says the line twice, and I have the clip. You ready? Here we go. Bring out the tissues. I am not an elephant. I am not an animal. I am a human being. It's not very long, but you see he says it twice. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and when he stretches out the human being, he doesn't say human being, he says human being. And he's 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 pitiful in that moment and he's got nothing left. And that's the only time in the film he defends himself. That's it. Yeah. He's got nothing left. He's done. And, and then um, another another scene that's just really emotional is the climax, um, which Oh yes. is my favorite uh, where you know Treves fulfills a goal of John's by taking him to see a stage play mm-hmm. and the stage play is Puss in Boots um, which is it's interesting because Puss in Boots is about an anthropomorphized cat and whereas uh, John um, who's now able to be the spectator himself instead of this the spectacle 
uh, he watches this anthropomorphized animal on stage who's dressed like a man opposite of him, right? Who's a man who's been degraded to the lowly status of an animal um, throughout his life. And and then after the finale of, of it, you know, the actress, I forget the actress's name, Anne Bancroft's character, comes out and dedicates the performance to him. And then everyone gives him a standing ovation. And it just, I mean, and like, I broke down in this scene. I mean, it, finally, it's like he's, for him, he's cheered for his his resilient spirit um, as opposed to being laughed at for his involuntary deformity. And um, I think that, I mean, this is the most pure piece of cinema, I think, that Lynch has ever done. And that, that scene, I think, ties the whole movie together. Uh, and I think I, th- I think it's the best scene in the movie, personally, um, and uh, like one of the greatest climaxes I've ever seen in a movie. Again, I think um, the most obvious parallel for someone like Tim Burton, who was trying to make his own version, would be like Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, you know, that's a good one. Yeah, um, even to the point where you have Vincent Price in the film, and <laughs> and I don't, I can't really play the the music here because of copyright stuff. But I direct anybody, uh, please go listen. It's very much on YouTube. It's very popular. John Morris's uh, theme, and which has become iconic of its own. But the tunes of it, I think, is a template that would help drive all of those collaborations between Tim Burton and Danny Elfman. And you can clearly hear it. You can clearly hear it in there. And But I don't think Danny Elfman has ever done a singular theme as, as iconic as the, um, as the Elephant Man theme. And oh. The conclusion of the movie, you know, the final scene when, let's just say spoilers, when John Merrick decides, okay, I'm done, it's time to go, that's when the music actually really kicks in. Yeah. And it's just him, and you you spend the last few minutes of the movie alone, and, you know, he, he gets a goodbye from his mother, so to speak. Yeah. And well, it's, yeah. I, I was going to ask you about that scene, um, because I know there's a lot of contra- uh, not controversy, uh, conversation online about, did he do it knowing he was gonna die or is he now so convinced that he i know some people are like oh he's just so convinced that he's a human now that he i mean he's a normal human i should say um that he's like just like everyone else uh, that he actually thought that he could survive it um well knowing what we know now i think the um there was some some discussion whether he died of his of you know lack of oxygen but i think the autopsy even from trivius himself said dislocated his neck because remember there's a big deal that he can't lay down yeah and I think finally that's the first and only time you actually see him laying down. So I think it's an acceptance. I think the film is trying to say um, he knew his time was was ready, and he's concluded as far as he could go. Um, maybe it's a little a little rough how it how it handles it, but I think you can't get past the fact that this man died at, at what twenty six years old, twenty seven. Yeah. Um, and he did not have the nicest of life. I mean, this is a man who was treated like an animal. And, and he was treated like a subhuman and abused and neglected and made fun of and, and you know, ridiculed. And it was through the kindness of others he was able to come out and, and live as a person, even for a little bit, and create art and, and inspire. And I think, you know, I think going back to the film itself, you know, even in 1980, a black and white film like this, even under an actor under pounds and pounds of makeup, they were able to... And this is where I think Roger Ebert was wrong. Um, the point of the film wasn't to show him doing the things. The point of the film wasn't to show him learning. Like they, they criticize, oh, we don't see him practicing Shakespeare. We don't need to see him practice. Like I, I don't need the thing. I, I need, I need the acknowledgement of the thing. 
that this this was a man and i think that comes through like so good so wonderful that to show him in the process would 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 sort of i don't know it'd be insulting to it's us as rocky. the audience yeah we don't it's need to rocky. yeah i don't need a montage yeah like rocky it, it, needs the montage yeah, it's it's touches, right? It's not, it, which is surprising. That Ebert always hates that stuff, though. Which is he used to hate that stuff. I, I, I think something was going. I think he sat on some some jujubes or something. I think he had to go to the bathroom or something. Something I, was up. I think something. I mean, every. I mean, a lot of critics fall victim to this of just kind of something kind of triggers a bias and and they can't. They just start finding wrong things about everything everything in the movie. I wonder what Pauline uh, Kale thought about this. She usually. The, he gave a thumbs down, or he just was critical. Thumbs down, didn't like it. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. That's uh, crazy. Let me let me go ahead and see what Pauline Kell thought. Yeah. Oh, here we go. She liked it. The Elephant Man is a very pleasurable surprise. Though I had seen a razor head, which is the only other feature directed by Lynch, she had taught him a true original. I wasn't prepared for the strength he would bring out an understatement. Oh, she liked. Yeah. She loved the movie. And it's funny too, because in a razor head, it's very much uh, like everything is implied almost like every, it's almost too symbolic. And I think that's why it doesn't resonate with some people. <clears throat> Although some people, I mean, people seem to freaking die over that film. But uh, whereas the stuff in this, I think he, he strikes a really nice balance between um, like symbolism and just telling this story, just face value. And um, I think that's where the, the brilliance of this movie, I mean, and I think that, I think it earned its eight nominations and, and the uh, reputation that it's gotten. Well, if we can go back further, um, the only symbolism we have to go on in the movie is is the is the fake autobiography that he was given. That that somehow a collision between an elephant and his mother caused the the stories. And if you think about it, if you really want to get deep into it, a person only knows what they know, and you know the the you know the the language of which they have, the vocabulary they have of which to construct a sentence is limited by the words they know. So if you teach someone something new, they add to the vocabulary. And whereas they showed Merrick uh, having nightmares with elephants, those at the end, those have been replaced, like he's at the theater. And I think, I think maybe if you're talking, if we're going to go deep into it, I think maybe what we're saying is, is that he was able to abolish the nightmares and replace them with humanity. Um, because he's not an elephant, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's that, there's that phrase the character says at the beginning, oh, Mr. Merrick, you're not an elephant man at all, you know, and by the end, it's, it's, there's a fierce protective, like, people become fiercely protective of him. Yeah. Instead of exploiting, and I, and I think, you know, it's funny, I saw some reviews for this film that actually criticized that, that actually called it, I think the word was mawkish. Really? And I thought to myself, what's wrong with that? Like yeah, the all movies are exploitive. Let's be honest here. All movies yeah. work on manipulation, but I think if any movie deserves to be it, I think you have the story of this man, like I said, who was so abused by everything that life had to give him. And the funny thing, Ethan, is that we keep like the movie doesn't really talk about it. But I want to ask your opinion about this because we didn't really talk about the cinematography that much in regards to like the way David Lynch chose to do smokestacks and steam and iron pipes and just dirtiness that looks so wonderful in black and white. This film has not yeah. aged an iota. It looks as good today as it did then. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think it looks better. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk about, like, the sound design, which I call, which I think is more diegetic, where, like, you hear, you, you hear ominous, 
and then but then you see in the background the people banging the pipes in rhythm and yeah. you realize it's it's heightened it's not realistic but it's the sound is of the time it makes you feel unlike most films uh it makes you actually feel like you're in victorian england yeah you're living yeah it feels like you're living yeah, in it except for the toilets uh <laughs> they had the toilets old. it's it's called the streets yeah um, uh, <laughs> so. yeah I, I i do think that and and like i was saying it, it really and i think this is where tim burton took a lot it feels like a diorama uh just uh everything in this feels like it's very locked in 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 a beautiful way like you're watching this and it was filmed in i believe on location in real locations i'm sure some of it was sound oh stage, man but I a lot that. of it was most of it i think was real locations and um just the fact that they got uh, that much, uh, I mean, Tim Burton doesn't usually film in real locations other than he maybe his first two movies. Green screen now. Yeah, well, now especially. But yeah, I mean, other than Pee Wee and Beetlejuice, I think most of his stuff is in um, on a soundstage. And even Beetlejuice, like half of it was in a soundstage. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I mean, I think that this movie is, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't speak on it enough. And um yeah, and going back to what you said about uh, people saying, oh, it's exploitative, but I think, it, like I was saying, it goes to the intent. Like, is your intent to, uh, like, laugh at the person like that one drunk dude does when he starts, you know, selling tickets to go see this guy? And, and there is a fine line between that and maybe what Treves is doing and and what, and you know, uh, maybe at, initially he had it with a slight idea of furthering his career, but eventually he... Um, he quickly actually he he sees the humanity in this person and um, it's no longer about that it's more about just trying to give this guy the best uh, life that he never got before exactly and I think um, and I think it's okay to it's okay to acknowledge the fact that you might be a little reviled the first time you see it it's okay to have yeah. that instinct but but like all learning you know, we have to, you have to stumble before you can walk and then you have to walk before you can run. And I think what the elephant man does, and I think it does it very, very well, by the way. And I think going back to Tim Burton, just for one last second, I think Tim Burton's entire original ovoir, his original films were all about that disgust, all about that revulsion and trying to make you find beauty in the macabre. But, but I think this, I think the elephant man, when it does almost effortlessly, at least it feels effortless, is that it it allows you that moment to feel disgust, but then it invites you not to. And I think the moment you do is the moment you cry along with Anthony Hopkins in that scene. And I do have one last clip because I think you mentioned this, you already mentioned the scene before, but I want you to listen really carefully because it combines the music, it combines the acting, and you don't need to necessarily need to see it. But this is Anthony Hopkins, I think, stating the um, theme of the film. Yeah, it's my last clip real quick. Okay. Okay, here it goes. Freddy. What's the matter, Freddy? I've been thinking about Mr. Bites. What on earth made you think of him? Well, I'm beginning to believe that Mr. Bites and I are very much alike. It's absurd. It seems that a... I've made Mr. Merrick into a curiosity all over again, doesn't it? I mean, this time in a hospital rather than a carnival. My name is constantly in the papers. I'm always being praised to the skies. Patients 
are now expressly asking for my services. Of course they do, because you're a very fine doctor. John Merrick is happier and more fulfilled now than he's ever been in his entire life, and it's completely due to you. What was it all for? Why did I do it? Freddy, what are you trying to say? Am I a good man? Or am I a bad man? And I think that's the film. Oh my goodness, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the I think that's the the film the question. Um I don't think it's I don't think it needs an answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's just it's and I think that's I, I think it's it is like you said it's effortless about it's just kind of like these these floating ideas and you, it's just endlessly thought-provoking I think this movie is in a way that really not a lot of movies are and I mean I, I mean, it's, it's what I feel like when I watch Mary Poppins or like mm-hmm. <laughs> a little more uh, <laughs> irreverently Barton Fink <laughs> just as a writer. Oh, Barton just, Fink's a good movie. I mean, it's great. Yeah, it's my favorite Coen Brothers movie. But um, you know what's funny, though? Um, I think David Lynch himself would struggle with this because I think if you look at his films post this, even Eraserhead has, of course, The Deformed Baby. But yeah. I think if you, you look at Dune – What's that fat? What's the farting guy's name? The fat guy? Oh, geez, the villain um, guy. Yeah, uh, the Harnikin or yeah. whatever. Or like the one we have to, the guy who has to milk the cat. Or yeah. you have the the little the the midget character in Twin Peaks. You know, you you have these explorations yeah. or grotesques that are actually backwards from what everything he did in yeah in this film. And I'm yeah. you know, and I'm wondering. You know how much how much of it was David Lynch himself, or how much was the team that Mel Brooks had helped assemble? Yeah, you it, know, because it is so different than everything he's done. Even yeah. just the themes, it's like the themes are backwards, like inverted from everything else that he does. Uh, it, uh, yeah, I mean it's crazy. The and I mean if you want to compare uh, bites to Treves, I mean. The difference is is that Treves actually changed. He was willing to change. He was willing to acknowledge. To, he he was always trying to better himself. Whether or not he was effectively doing that, he was trying to better himself, and he allowed um, John Merrick to to make him a better person. Whether or not you know he was open to the idea of bettering himself, and I think that's where Bites did not succeed at doing. Oh and, no, Bites and, was and, <laughs> Bites was reprehensible in the film. Yeah, and, and ultimately though, it, it and then it, this, going back to the celebrity, the idea of celebrity, it, it's it's not about how people perceive you. It's about how it's about doing your best, knowing that you're doing things for the right reasons, and you know, knowing that you're going to impact one person, and that's all that you're you know to make a difference in one person's life, um, and 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 that's a, a life well lived, and I think that's exactly. Even if Treves doesn't think, even if Treves sees himself as the villain in, in his own story, I, I think John Merrick would see him as as the hero, I, and I, vice versa. I agree, and I and I think I think it's such an interesting question that yeah. that's a moralistic question that the idea that you have to feel good, like the the stuff you need mm. to be the like yes. you have to feel selfless in order to do good. Like you can't. Yeah. You know, for example, if uh, we see this all the time with billionaires and millionaires who give money, it's like, oh, this billionaire dedicates this much money to a college or, or leaves this like much money. Like one percent of it's like, their... oh, only go... yeah, but it's more than you'll ever leave. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, what is it? Like, it's it's not about doing good. It's it's the idea that you need approval 
that it needs to be sort of run through the, the grinder and it needs yeah. to come out clean on the other side. Um, yeah. You know, the, the word that you have for it is called pathological altruism. It's the idea that you're doing something because you're, dr you're driven by this, you know, this um, almost addiction to keep doing good and you have to do good. You have to keep doing good. You have to keep doing good. I get it. Um, it's scrupulous. It's not, it's not earnest. It is. And yeah. at the end of the day, though, I think it's a pointless endeavor. It's a good moralistic game to play. But the wife makes sense here. And this is why I asked you if it's a feminist film, because the, the women in the film are sort of the voice of reason, whereas the men have to go through, like, the hard change. Like, you don't see the nurses going through the hard change. They just go through it. Um, it's the man asking the morality questions, even Merrick himself. Like, he has to go with accepting the fact that he's not an animal. Like, there's even that one scene towards the end, you know, with, um, what's his face? Uh, you just mentioned his name. Um, excuse me. Bites. You know, Bites. Where he puts him in the cage with the, you know, the primate. Yeah. You know, he, he, he does everything he can to be cruel. And it's the kid, it's the other, it's the other circus performers who help him out. And in one way, it parallels Freaks, going back to closing this up, in the fact that I think what these films both do, and I think you would agree, that what Elephant Man and Freaks both do is is that it allows its characters to assert their humanity, um, regardless how you feel about them. Like I think by the end of it, by the end of Elephant Man, when he decides to lay down and, and go to bed, he's doing that. He's making that choice. Whether that's realistic or not, but I think that's clearly what the film wants you to make clear, that he's you know, he's he's okay with this. He's okay with where he is. Yeah. And so yeah. Yeah, and we know. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, we and we don't need validation at that point. Yeah, and 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 yeah, and exactly. And so yeah, he's he's trying to find. Maybe he tried to find validation in his uh, scientific uh, research and, and uh, discoveries early on, but now he's feeling guilty in that in the fact that he found validation, but be, but trying to find validation in the fact that he wasn't trying to find validation yeah it's it's tricky and it's uh circular uh, you know cyclical uh but uh, yeah it's like i said it's it's very thought-provoking and i think you can I, I don't think there's enough you can say about this movie you can't cover every every inch of this movie in in one conversation i don't think no i don't think so and um my final thought of this is that anybody listening who has not to see elephant man um i think what you should do is you should find the best copy you can and you should find a nice display and a nice stereo or a nice headset or even watch it on your iPhone and watch the film and make your own determination. But I think you might not be ready for what you're going to see. And I would say uh, allow the film to envelop you and to accept it on its own levels because I think it is definitely deserving of that. And I think um, I think you would agree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's on Prime, too, and it's a good copy on Prime. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, I I don't know how you watched it, but uh, I watched it on Prime. I don't have this one, but uh, yeah, it was a great copy. It looked great. I think it it was. I don't know if it was four K, but it was definitely ten uh, eighty at least. I think I had the Criterion one. Okay, um, I think yeah, it might have actually been it that version. It holds up so well, though visually. Yeah. Um, again, I I'm biased. I think the films of the late seventies, early eighties are the finest like cinematically shot movies of all time. Um, before the before the age of te of touchstone, before the age of color coding, when everything became neon drenched and everything became that softer somberness, yeah, you know, and I I love it. I lo I just love the way these films look. And um, 
yeah, maybe we'll, someday we'll go back. But until then, <laughs> we don't. Blue screens. I think we're finished. I think you want to take us out? Yeah. So that that has been Freaks and the Elephant Man, and you've been listening to the Movie Time podcast by Pop Zara. And uh, I've been your co-host, Ethan Brem. And, and alongside me, Nathan Evans. That's true. That's exactly who I am. So... <laughs> No, thank you very much, Ethan. Uh, you recommended these two, and I think they were a perfect pairing, uh, like like a nice uh, fine wine and Chianti. <laughs> Come on, tell me you got that. Some fava beans. Some fava beans and a Chianti. Uh, but yeah, uh, thank you very much. And everybody, go watch them. Yep, watch them. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Pop Czar Podcast. For more quality original content, check out PopZara.com for the latest reviews and previews in gaming, movies, tech, and more. 